Let's turn our Bibles to the prophet Hosea. And we'll look at chapter 5. Ever, only, all for thee. Devotion, single-mindedness, single-heartedness. The opposite of what the problem was with Israel in that they were double-minded at best. They were double-minded and double-hearted in following the Lord because they wanted to follow their idols and their own way. Let's come to chapter 5 and verse 4 as it speaks of Ephraim and Israel from the third verse. They will not frame their doings to turn unto their God. For the spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them, and they have not known the Lord. It is one thing to say you know the Lord. It's another thing to say that you, to write it that you know the Lord. But the real evidence of knowing the Lord is turning to the Lord. Framing your doings to turn unto God. When we frame something up, we constrain it and restrict it. And they would not do this. We are told, and I quoted this in the first assembly today, in Romans chapter 12, that we are not to be conformed to this world. We are not to be bending or loose to follow after the world. We are to be transformed, that is, to be made different than the world. They will not frame their doings to turn unto their God. They will not take, put the restraints up to stop going in this direction to go in this direction toward the God of heaven. They would not do that. And we're told why. Because they were whores. They loved the things of this world. You know, the Apostle Paul used twice another expression other than adultery, fornication, or whoredom to describe those that are friendly or flirt with the world. He described them as belly worshipers. When you like the things of this world, and that's all the higher your little mind can think, you're a belly worshiper. Because you're worshiping things that just satisfy the belly. You eat them, you defecate them, and it's all gone. That's how simple and foolish you are. Here it's whoredom. Because instead of being loyal and committed to the Lord and setting your face and your heart and your feet and your hands to go in His way, you wander after the lust of your flesh. You wander after the seductions of the world. So here, the prophet describes them, and we don't want to fit this description. They will not frame their doings to turn unto their God. We have, to make a change, you have to put up a frame. You have to put up a fence, if you will. I will not go any further in that direction. I'm going to confine myself to this direction. I will not watch that on television. I will not speak that way. I will not hang around with those people because they do not lead me in paths of righteousness. And their evil communications corrupt my good manners. I won't do it. But the spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them, and they have not known the Lord. The real knowledge of God is wanting to change your life to follow Him. It is not lip service. Now, turning your life to serve the Lord and not giving lip service, that doesn't please the Lord either. Because He wants them both. He wants them both. So some of you that may sit there and say, well, I follow the Lord in my personal life. The Lord doesn't care. He wants you in here telling, telling the Lord, praising Him and offering praise and giving thanksgiving. He wants both. But let's not be like these are described right here in chapter 5. The priests, the rulers, and the people of Israel would not alter their lifestyle to please the holy God they had. Our God is holy and He's jealous. 
and he burns in that holy jealousy. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. Our God is a consuming fire. That is not preached. That is not believed anymore. Their God is a sugar daddy, cotton candy grandpa. Senile, lazy, fat, and old in heaven. Totally contrary to the word of God. He is a consuming fire. And he wants us to frame our doings to turn unto the Lord. And when we don't do that, if we will not commit our... If, when, it, when two people are married and they make their covenant of marriage, they promise each other, I will only have eyes and a heart and think of you for my lovemaking. That's what we consider faithfulness and fidelity. And when it comes to the God of heaven, it should be the same way. I will only have eyes and heart and a life for you. I'm all yours. Ever only. All for thee. We just sang it. Without intelligent planning on our part. But the Lord arranged it. And they wouldn't do it because they were whores. They have not known the Lord. Really knowing the Lord and the Lord knowing you and the Lord changing your heart, you want to frame your ways. You want to direct them to make sure you're pleasing Him. Just like a good spouse does everything they can to relieve the fears and jealousy of their spouse, to reassure them and to give them their whole heart and their dedication to them. God's called us to be framed, to be transformed to Him. But many are double-minded. You know what Jesus would say? You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot do it. You can't serve them both. For either you will love the one and hate the other, or you will hold the one and despise the other. Because they're opposites. This world and Jesus Christ are opposites. They're not compatible. Christianity is not compatible with Americanism. They're opposites. It doesn't matter that it says in God we trust on money or we say under God in that little ridiculous pledge to the flag. They're opposites. This is not a God-fearing nation. This is a God-hating nation. It's a devil-loving nation. It's been that way for a long, long time. If it could ever be called a truly Christian nation. The confused fathers that we had in this country would speak of God sometimes. They'd speak of the great architect. Who in the world is that? The great architect, is that the father of masonry? Who in the world are they talking about? But Jehovah God is the one we want to turn ourselves unto. They have not known the Lord. Many are double-minded. They love to flirt with the world. We can't do it. We need to despise the world's lifestyle and love the lifestyle of Christians. There's a controversy. God had a controversy with Israel, and Hosea wrote about it. God has a controversy with this nation. And he has a controversy with us if we don't frame our ways to follow the Lord. The lesson from chapter 5 and verse 4, the true knowledge of God results in a changed life that matches up with the Scriptures. If you don't have a changed life that matches up with the Scriptures, then you do not really know the knowledge of God. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what others would say of you. What we have to do is listen to the Lord's controversy. And the Lord's controversy is, if you don't frame your way to turn unto me, then you don't really know me. And you haven't known me. Because those who really know me have changed lives. Verse 6, continuing about these people and priests and kings. If you read the first verse of the chapter, it tells you that we're dealing with their leadership. But in verse 6 it says, They shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek the Lord, but they shall not find Him. He hath withdrawn Himself from them. This is the same lesson 
as you heard this morning from Psalm 50. If I was hungry, I would not tell thee. All the fullness of the earth is mine. If you think that by offering those animals to me, you're giving me something I needed because I was, I'm like a hungry God, like the Greek gods and the Egyptian gods and the Roman gods, that you would put offerings of food out in front of them and the priest would come by at night and sneak them off, no more intelligent than a mother putting Christmas presents under a Christmas tree during the night or slipping money for the tooth fairy under a pillow. They're all the same level of intelligence. They're all idiots. And the Bible says they that worship them are like unto them. They shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek the Lord. All these animal sacrifices that Psalm 50 spoke about. How about Micah chapter 6? Is the Lord pleased with 10,000 rivers of oil? No. But what is it, O man, that the Lord is pleased with? To love mercy. To do justice. To fear the Lord. To turn your ways unto Him. To frame your doings. This is what's important to him. So these priests are going to go with herds, flocks of sacrifices to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. Not everyone that is worshiping God meets God. Most people that worship God do not meet him. Because unless they frame their doings to match up with the word of God, he will not be found of them because he will withdraw himself from them. Psalm, I mean, Proverbs chapter 1, excuse me, Proverbs chapter 1, verses 24 through 28. Because I cried, and you did not answer me. Because I offered, and you did not take my wisdom. Therefore, I will laugh at you when your calamity comes upon you. Now, that's when God has a controversy with someone. These are not the words of a wild Solomon. These are not the words of a wild Jonathan Crosby. These are the words of the God of heaven. Amen. When your calamity comes upon you and terror is gripping your heart, I will laugh at you. I will mock you. I will withdraw from you. Because when I offered, you refused what I offered you. And Hosea was offering them peace and mercy and blessing and forgiveness. And Proverbs chapter 1 offers blessing and mercy and reward and forgiveness. And if you don't take advantage of that, then the Lord's going to laugh when you're... He's going to have you in derision when your calamities and troubles come. And they will come. They shall not find him. He hath withdrawn himself from them. The Bible tells us that God left Hezekiah. Remember? I went to that passage recently and we looked at it a little more closely than usual. And it says that he did not render to the Lord for the benefit that God had given him. The 15 years that God gave Hezekiah, Hezekiah did not turn around and give him 15 years of love and devoted service back. And he sinned in the matter of the ambassadors from Babylon. But then he humbled himself greatly, and the Lord had mercy upon him. The Lord, the Lord withdraws himself from those that, that want to play, those that want to fiddle around with another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit, those that don't want to follow the word of God. He'll withdraw from them. Their religion becomes dead. They don't have the joy. Don't have the peace. His blessing isn't in their life, and it's rightly so. They can pray. He will not hear. They can go to church. He will not meet with them because he'll withdraw from them because they would not frame their doings to turn unto the Lord. Verse 15. The Lord speaking, I will go and return to my place. He'll withdraw. 
I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. Affliction is a good thing. We sang a song a few minutes ago called Affliction. Affliction brought the prodigal home, and affliction's done that for many men. Who humbled himself greatly and from prison was taken 500 miles and put back on the throne? Manasseh, the worst king Judah ever had. He humbled himself greatly and the Lord heard him. But here's the Lord saying, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Lord can be found. Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call ye upon Him while He is near, Isaiah 55. Don't let Him withdraw. Repent. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Admit your offense. Admit what you have done wrong. Admit your love of the world. Admit your dishonoring of your parents. Admit you're not loving your spouse. Admit you're not reading the Bible. Admit you've been watching things on television that are not pleasing to God. Admit you violated Romans chapter 1 verse 32 by your television. Admit entertainment and pleasure is more important to you than the Word of God and the, God and the Lord's people. Admit it. Admit and acknowledge your offense. He may be found. He may be found. If you truly repent, he will be found. And seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. When the Lord leaves us, consequences are terrible, but they ought to lead us back to him. Look at Psalm 119. I haven't turned to very many passages because I want to keep your focus on Hosea. But in Psalm 119, let me show you a couple of verses where the psalmist thanked the Lord for affliction in his life. And we have had a couple testimonies today that were in this same direction of being thankful for affliction. Psalm 119 and verse 67. There's three of them right close together. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now have I kept thy word. So the order is, I went astray. I was afflicted by God. Now I'm keeping his word again. And that's here in this Psalm 119 and verse 67. Verse 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Okay, if we went astray and God afflicted us, and that affliction brought us back to keeping his word, then we should say, I am thankful that I was afflicted because it brought me from going astray back to keeping his word. I hope it all makes very simple, clear sense to you. Verse 75. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. I understand that the bad things that have happened to me were to get my attention and turn me unto you. I had gone astray. You pounded me a little. Not all that I deserved. But you pounded me a little. Now I'm keeping your word. I'm thankful for it. And you know, when I look back at it and I read your word, I know that you did it in faithfulness because you love me. Because a good father is never too tired to properly discipline his children because he loves them too much to let a night, a week, a month, or a year go and not help in their formation to be perfect. In faithfulness, you've afflicted me. And we've had some testimonies of some brothers that have stood here and said that they were thankful for the troubles in their lives 
they know that they are working out the good purpose of God for them. What's the lesson? Appreciate affliction. Consider in the day of adversity. Examine your heart and your life. Where have you gone astray that God may be afflicting you to get you back in the way of righteousness and keeping His Word again? Thank Him for it, for the goodness of it, and appreciate His faithfulness in doing it. Chapter 6. Oh, how many are there in this assembly that fit this verse? I've, I've had some feedback and some rumors today that several of you young men have been provoked by some things you've heard so far. You've heard Psalm 50, and you've heard the book of Hosea to chapter 6, and you've been convicted a little. How often have we been convicted, knowing that we should love the Lord more devotedly, knowing that we should live more focused lives in His service, but then we walk out of here and we fiddle with the knob of our radio on the way home or some other bunch of devilish noise to drive out thinking and conviction and meditation, and we lose it. Look at the verse. Verse 4, chapter 6. O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew, it goeth away. The dew that comes in the grass in the morning and the clouds that you can see at the break of day, they're driven away by the same object, the heat of the sun. The heat of the sun drives away those morning clouds and the heat of the sun evaporates the dew that is on the grass. And it's gone. How much is our conviction like that? And that is why I say when you're convicted, you ought to run with that conviction. You ought to stoke it, stroke it, thank the Lord for it, do something about it. Tell someone so they can help you stay convicted about it. Your goodness is like a morning cloud and like the dew, quickly gone. It goeth away. Where is your real, con- where is your real continuity? Where is your persistence, your perseverance? The Bible says, He that continueth in my word is my disciple indeed. In John chapter 8 and verse 31. Ye are my disciples, if ye continue in my word. And then Jesus gave them a few hard things to hear in the rest of John chapter 8. And they went away and they tried to kill him. Colossians chapter 1 says, If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled. Oh Lord, help us. You know what? We come into the house of God sometimes. We come, we come somewhat prepared. We come somewhat praying. We come somewhat participating. And we hear preaching, we read God's Word, and we're somewhat convicted by it. And then we leave and it's gone. Or we leave and we keep it up for a couple of hours and it's gone. You want a controversy with the Lord? He doesn't like that. He gets tired of going to bed with his wife and having a very romantic, intense intimate session of lovemaking, and then the next day, not seeing any of it. Like it's already dissipated. Every man knows what I'm talking about, and every woman knows what I'm talking about, from her standpoint. The Lord doesn't like that. 
He wants us dedicated to Him and continuing in our hot affection for Him. So how are we going to do it? We can't be like this. We can't be like Ephraim and Judah. We can't let our goodness be as a morning cloud and as the early dew on the, on the grass. We have to use each other. We need to exhort each other, lest we be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And depart from the living God, is what that text goes on to say. We don't want to be like them, because to be like them, do you know what's going to come in this book? He's going to look for pregnant women so that he can rip them up with pitchforks. You say, that is disgustingly crude and harsh. That is the God of heaven, because you don't understand sin. And you don't understand God's righteousness and holiness. If you ever got a glimpse of sin, you would understand how terrible it is, and ripping up a pregnant woman with a pitchfork is nothing. I want to tell you something. Eating one piece of fruit off the tree has taken 100 billion human beings to death and decay before they get to die, and to see and disease before they get to decay and before they get to die. One transgression against the God of heaven. That is where death came from. And there's no other explanation for death except the Bible. Sin is terrible. And when we, get, when we give the Lord our goodness, and when He comes alluring us, and when He puts up a hedge of thorns and gets our attention because it pokes us and pricks us, and we turn back unto the Lord, He wants it more than an hour. He doesn't want just one good dinner with the Lord. He wants it the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And our love not to dissipate, and not to be burned away with a few obligations of life, but to continually love, to continually offer the sacrifice of praise, to continually give thanksgiving, to continually read His Word, to continually tell Him that you love Him. I hope I don't need to elaborate any further. Everyone, in a, everyone that knows about what a relationship uh, an intimate relationship is, you understand it. You have those moments of, of hot passion. And the Lord wants them always, ever, only, all for thee. That's what he wants. He doesn't want us to be like this, the goodness just disappearing. Yes, we, I frame my doings to follow the Lord for three hours. I frame my doings. I gave my wife the password to my internet. Until that night when I asked for it back. I put down my beer and wine that I have a problem with. For two days. Aren't you proud of me? I frame my doings to turn unto the Lord. You're like the morning clouds and the early dew. It's not good enough. The Lord has a controversy with you and me. Hear the word of the Lord, brethren. We don't want the scourge to touch us. I believe that the Lord can keep us safe and sound and prospering and happy right here. Amen. And I want that for you and your children and my children and my wife and I, by God's mercy. He has a controversy. This is it. Your goodness doesn't last very long. Your love for me doesn't last very long. Let's do better. Let's help each other do better. Let's press each other to do better. I know, I know that I sound incredibly harsh. I know I don't like it myself. 
But it's the right thing to do. And it's the right thing to say. And it's the only way I know how. And I hope it's always the only way I know how. Because of the next verse in Hosea chapter 6. Verse 5. Because God is sick by you making love to Him for an hour and forgetting it the next day, because God is sick of your goodness disappearing like the morning clouds and the early dew, therefore have I hewed them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and thy judgments are as the light that goeth forth. The prophets came to Israel and ripped them. I was going to send you another email last night, but I didn't want to disturb you. I just I wanted to send out another email entitled, A Little More Preparation. And it was like last, I know, like last week. And I was going to send you Ezekiel 16, where the Lord passed by and saw that little baby in the field that wasn't swaddled and tells the long 60-verse story about I took that little baby and helped her blossom into a beautiful woman. Then she took everything I had given her and paid for lovers to come and have sex with her. And it gets a whole lot more graphic than that as he's describing Israel going after other gods after he gave them everything they had. And the language is so graphic. That's why I'm bringing it up right now as an example of this text. Therefore have I hewed them by the prophets. To hew something is to take a knife or a sword and to chop it into pieces. And that is the way preaching is to be done in both Testaments. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 through 6, Paul said, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through God in the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It is my job to fight you every time we come into this place. Yes, sometimes there's room for comfort. Sometimes there's room for encouragement. But it's to fight the thoughts of your heart and my heart. When that's not done, Bible preaching isn't taking place. Because Paul said those were the weapons of his warfare. And he told Timothy, fight a good warfare. The warfare of a minister is to fight your thoughts. Because your thoughts are wrong. Your thoughts stink. And so do mine. And every imagination of your heart that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and the only knowledge of God that counts is right here. It is not a thousand people at Brookwood. It is not Rick Warren. It is not Pope Benedict XVI. No one defines the knowledge of God except the Bible. Amen. And the Bible is to be preached hard and straightforward and honest and clear and open and, bla- and blasted against sin. And that's to hew them by the prophets. And to slay them with the words of my mouth. This is the Lord speaking. His word is to be presented just like that. He said in Jeremiah chapter 23, I am sick of the prophets that tell about their dreams. I have a dream. Oh, what a Baptist minister that was. World's number one philanderer. I have a dream. Really precious indeed. What is a dream compared to my word, saith the Lord, Jeremiah 23? It is the chaff, and it blows away in the wind. My word is like a fire and a hammer. It burns, and it it dashes in pieces. That is the preaching that God wanted the prophets in Israel to be doing when He sent Jeremiah to them. 
The reason that these people were being destroyed and that, they, and that their nation was being going to be turned upside down and sold off to the Assyrians we, because there was no knowledge of God in the land because the preachers didn't preach it. The priests didn't teach it. This is how it's to be done in verse 5. Let me say the words to you again from 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and what a New Testament minister is to look like. Joel Osteen. If you put him in a very wet paper bag and gave him a very sharp sword, he still couldn't get out. That man has never thought of waging war in his life. I do not know why he appears on his stage in a pair of pants. He has never waged war. If he waged war, the 20,000 in the Houston Rockets' former home would be whittled down to 2,000 by the next Sunday. Because the time has come when they will not endure sound doctrine. 2 Corinthians 10.4 The weapons of our warfare. Preaching and being a minister is a war and there are weapons. They are not carnal. They're not what the world thinks of effective speaking or anything like that. It's not their image. It's not their music show. It's not their light show. It's not having a big giant playground for the children. It's not Starbucks in the lobby. It's not dress as you come as you are. It's none of those things. It's this. Our weapons are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. That is proper preaching according to Paul writing to the Corinthians. And it hasn't changed, has it? That sounds like Hosea chapter 6 and verse 5. Therefore have I hewed them by the prophets. It's a war. We come in here for a few hours out of the 168 hours in a week. We take the Word of God and it makes war against us. Because all week long, the world's making war against it. And your flesh is making war against it. And the devil is making war against it. And we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against the lusts of our flesh because we are in a war for our souls. And it's the Word of God that is to be presented in a way to slash and burn, to crush and break. And to, get, and to take captive your thoughts. That's why it's done the way it's done in our church. Because there's only one way to do it. The right way. Preach the word. These things speak and teach and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Amen. Titus chapter 2. That's why. There's, it's, not, it's not a thing about man. It's everything about the Lord. One second after meeting the Lord... You will know everything that I've told you is the truth because everything I've told you is from the Bible. One second. You'll know. Therefore have I hewed them by the prophets. What did they do that was so bad that God hewed them by the prophets? Their goodness disappeared like the morning clouds and the early dew upon the grass. That's what they did. They didn't continue in the faith grounded and settled. They were removed away from the hope of the gospel. They lost their hope. Because their hope was out in the world instead of in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They didn't continue in Jesus' word. They didn't keep his commandments. They wandered off. They wanted to be a little worldly. 
That's the controversy he has, and that's why he sent the book of Hosea to us in 2009, today, to get our attention. Let's not let our goodness and our conviction and our conversion and our being transformed be like the early clouds. And never, you young men, when we're dead and gone, don't you ever let anyone preach to you that doesn't preach to you the Bible way. You don't need stories. You don't need James Dobson telling you stuff that is too light and frivolous for Girl Scouts. You listen to his sappy little stories about playing catch with his dad on the radio when he comes on for his little five-minute snippets. I get sick to my stomach. I want to puke. I want to puke. It is so nauseating. That isn't preaching the word. The only reason that James Dobson is on 1,200 radio stations or whatever that number may be is because there isn't one bit of sound doctrine in what he says. That's why they let him on. Trust me. They don't want sound doctrine on the radio waves. You young men, don't you ever let anyone preach to you that doesn't preach the Bible way. You don't need to be entertained, consoled, stroked, comforted, and coddled all the time. There's enough comfort in the gospel. The comfort's going to come to us in chapter 14. But we have a few chapters before we get to 14. It's a war when we come in here, and it should be a war. We need to make war. We're in a serious fight for our souls. Do you remember what it was? The Lord had a controversy with the inhabitants of the land because there is no truth, mercy, or the knowledge of God. How do you get the knowledge of God? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Who is that addressed to in 4-6? The ministry. What's this in verses 6-5? It's the ministry. What did it say in verse in verse 5, it's talking about them hewing, the prophets hewing them and slaying them. And then it says this in verse 6, and it's the next verse I want, and the last verse from this chapter. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice. You know where that fits in. I desired mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus applied that principle to justify his disciples eating corn on the Sabbath day that the Pharisees condemned them for. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 27. Jesus practiced that principle when he would heal on the Sabbath day, and the Pharisees would criticize him for that, because mercy is more important than sacrifice. Getting all hung up about the Sabbath was just a ridiculous... Nehushtan! Nehushtan! Are you kidding? It's the seventh day! This is what Jesus said. It's the seventh day! If we can make a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day, shouldn't we do it? The only reason God ever ordained the seventh day was not because he thought the number seven was cool. If I had need of a seventh day for rest, I wouldn't have told you. I rest in myself eternally. He made the Sabbath day of rest for men. And if a man's lame, if a man's crippled, if a man's blind, if a man has a withered hand... And he can be healed on the Sabbath day. Praise the Lord. That's a fulfillment of the Sabbath day. Because the Sabbath was ordained for rest. So Jesus practiced the first half of this. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice. And he quotes it. But we want the second half right now. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. God doesn't want your goodness to be like the early, the morning clouds and the early dew. 
by just giving a sacrifice, as has already been stated. We've had good repetition today. Repetition helps learning. The Lord isn't all that interested in your attendance. He isn't all that interested in your tithes. He isn't all that interested in your testimonies. He's interested in your knowledge of God. And that knowledge of God is knowing the true God of the Bible and giving Him what that God wants. And we had shown that to us in Psalm 50, where it said, He wants us to offer up praise and thanksgiving to Him. And when we're in trouble, instead of looking anywhere else, He wants us to call upon Him. Then He'll deliver and we can praise Him some more. It's a wonderful cycle to get into. That's pure religion. That's what He wants. He wants us framing our ways to turn unto the Lord. That's what He wants. That's the real knowledge of God. Because if you don't do that, you're showing that you don't have the knowledge of God. They will not frame their doings to turn unto unto God. For the spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them, and they have not known the Lord. 5-4. This all fits together. So here we are. 6-6. I desired mercy and not sacrifice. I'm sick of your sacrifices. I don't need them. I'm not hungry. I already own them all. The cattle and the thousand hills are mine. Do you all, are you all able to put all these scriptures together and make perfectly good sense of them in your heart and soul? And do they convict you? The Lord is unhappy with our goodness when it goes away as a morning cloud. Some of you have said you were convicted by things that happened today. Some of you have said you were convicted by Nehushtan from Wednesday evening. Some of you have written me at times about being convicted. What happened to it? Don't let it slip. Stir it up. Therefore, he sends nasty, ugly men to rip and snort with the Word of God to try to show you what the Bible says about what he's going to do if you do not repent. Because, verse 6, I desired mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't care about your ceremonial ritual religion. I wanted your heart. I wanted your praise. I wanted your lips. I wanted your doings. I wanted your lifestyle. I didn't want your outward ceremony two hours a week. Your solemn assemblies, they stink. I hate them. Away with it. Isaiah chapter 1. Mike, Malachi chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 58. The Bible's full of that. God doesn't care about that ceremony. When your heart's not in it, what He wants is both. He wants us here on the Lord's Day. He wants us here on Wednesday night. He wants us giving testimonies. He wants us giving of our our first fruits of our increase. He wants that. But most of all, above that, He wants our hearts. He wants our lips. He wants our feet. He wants us to frame our doings and turn unto Him. This is the Word of the Lord. This is the character of God that is the foundation for principles of righteousness for the wise. When it says, who is wise? He shall understand these things. A wise man is able to look at four, five, and six and say, you know, I have been convicted. I have framed my ways to turn to the Lord and it's disappeared in an hour. It's disappeared in a day. It's disappeared in a week. I should do better. God's righteous in having a controversy with me. I understand now why the prophets are so hard, as verse 5 describes, because God's trying to get their attention before His judgments come forth that are going to be as clear as the light that shines. And now I know what He wants. He doesn't want sacrifice. He wants mercy. He doesn't want offerings. He wants the knowledge of God, the real knowledge of God. Who is wise? 
he shall understand these things. Who is prudent? He shall know these things. And those that walk in them shall be delivered. The just shall walk in them. But those that neglect or reject these things shall fall therein. And the fall is going to be terrible. But if you've read, if you've read Hosea 14, then you know that when, we say, when the people say, Let us turn unto the Lord. Let us take with us words. Confess our sins. Asher can't save us. You are only God. What does he say immediately? I will heal them. I will love them freely. I will heal their backslidings. Praise the Lord. That's how easy it is with our Father. That's how easy it is with our Father when we come running to Him. Why didn't Adam come running to God, his Father? Not God his Father in a spiritual sense because we don't know that. But God his Father in a creative sense. Why didn't Adam come out of those trees and run to his Father and ask for mercy? Why didn't those around Jesus in John chapter 8 and the woman taken in adultery, why didn't their conscience condemn them that's, that what stood before them was the only holy and righteous man they had ever known? Why? Because God's had mercy on you and given you a different conscience and a new man that I hope has heard some things today that have stirred him up that you want to be thankful and that you want a hedge around you and that you want to repent for your sins, and that you want to beg for his mercy, because the purpose of all this is the Lord has a controversy with our land, and he has a controversy with us if we are guilty of any of the sins of Israel and Ephraim and Judah in the book of Hosea. At this time, we are going to have public prayer for God to grant our nation repentance and us repentance to preserve our land and to save us and to show us mercy.